Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, welcome to New Books in German Studies, a channel in the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am Michael O'Sullivan of Marist College, one of the co-hosts of this podcast. Today, we are very lucky to have Dr. Christopher A. Molnar as a guest. He is Associate Professor of History at the University of Michigan, Flint. Today, we will discuss his book entitled Memory, Politics, and Yugoslav Migrations in Postwar Germany. The book appeared with Indiana University Press in 2018. Hello, Chris. Welcome to the show. Hi, Michael. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So to start, Chris, I was wondering if I could uh, do a traditional New Books Network start here. And I was going to ask you if you could discuss uh, how your interests in the fields of German studies on the one hand and migration studies on the other first started. In other words, just share a little bit of your professional biography with the audience. Okay. So uh, yeah, I'll start first with my interest in German studies. Um, In some ways, this was accidental. Uh, My interest in Germany and German history began with a family vacation to to Europe, specifically Germany and France. Um, And this took place um, right before I began my undergraduate degree. Uh, I had previously in high school not been particularly interested uh, in history at all, let alone European history. And something about just being in Germany and being in France um, and seeing, you know, the, 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 just the obvious history that these, um, that these places had uh, kind of sparked an interest in me. Uh, and then I started college and somewhat randomly, just, you know, my first semester was in a, uh, in a kind of introduction to, I guess, Western civilization class. I had a really, really um, talented professor and my, my interest grew. Uh, and, you know, before I knew it, I was then enrolling in a class in modern German history. And by that time, I was pretty much hooked, uh, started taking German language classes um, and decided, well, this is this is what I want to do. I want to go to grad school uh, to study German history. Um, so uh, one other thing I want to mention there before getting into migration studies uh, is that uh, it was really my, I did my master's degree at Purdue University and I overlapped there uh, with, uh, with a professor uh, in German history, Will Gray. I overlapped there with just uh, one year with him uh, and did a independent study with him. And he really was kind of a pioneer in writing post 45 German history. So this was 2000, say 2003, 2004, uh, and, you know, very few people were writing post-war German history. So he kind of got me hooked on thinking about post-war German history. Um, okay, so my my interest in migration studies, uh, I guess I kind of came to this uh, on my own. I was thinking about this and I never had a professor. Um, I never had a professor who taught or researched European immigration history. Uh, so I was drawn to migration studies kind of from personal interests. Uh, I grew up uh, in Northwest Indiana, about uh, 40 minutes south of um, 
south of downtown Chicago. And uh, by the time I was in college, I had grown really interested in uh, exploring Chicago's rich sort of ethnic history and taking trips up and going to all the different ethnic communities. Then later, I went to Germany as a tourist uh, a number of times uh, and was really, you know, then you go there and you see, oh, my gosh, there's these really vibrant immigrant communities. Uh, And taking those together kind of eventually, you know, I sort of took those ideas together of my interest in post-war German history and then my interest in kind of ethnic immigration history and brought those together eventually. Great, Chris. I appreciated that answer. And I think it speaks on the one hand to the role of mentorship and, and, uh, you know, helping to create future scholars, but also your own, um, you know, your own initiative initiative to pursue such a, a, you know, an original topic. So I would like to follow up and I want to ask you then to discuss the circumstances that led you to research and write this particular book uh, and uh, kind of what is the intellectual origin origin story of uh, this project? Okay. So, um, you know, I think unlike the vast majority of PhD history students today, and, and really, I guess, even when I was in graduate school, I started my PhD program at Indiana University in 2005. And when I arrived, I didn't yet have a dissertation topic. Um, this was, uh, you know, basically all my friends did. And I realized pretty quickly, like, oh, I need to figure this out. And this is where I sort of, I sort of brought together these interests that I already had. And again, on the one hand, on ethnic immigration history and post-war German history. And I thought, okay, I'm going to write my dissertation on uh, migration and post-war Germany. And of course, what did that mean? It meant I'm going to write about Turks. Um, uh, And of course, there are, uh, you know, there's a great deal of historical writing about Turks in Germany, including a number of of, uh, excellent scholars who I know you've interviewed on this podcast recently. Um, so I, I told my advisor, okay, I want to write a, a history of Turkish migration as my dissertation. My advisor, uh, Mark Roseman, uh, he, um, he talked to some sort of leading migration scholars in Germany. Uh, I'm, I'm still not completely clear on who he talked to, but he came back to me and said that the, the, the sort of migration experts in Germany said that Turkish migration history is done. Um, it's already done. It's a, there's essentially, there's not more that can be said there. Um, this was, this was 2005, 2006. So obviously the, the people who said this were totally wrong because there are new <laughs> books coming out. You know, there's numerous new histories coming out just in the last couple of years. Uh, great scholars, great histories. Um, and I know in the next two to five years, there's going to be a whole handful more of really, really great histories and Turks coming out. But in any case, I was told it's done. Um, and I was told, why don't you think about another group? And I, and right away, uh, I, I kind of latched on to the idea of writing about Yugoslavs, uh, because Yugoslavs I knew were the second largest immigrant group, uh, in Germany. And I could see right away, um, you know, almost before I knew anything about their history, I could see right away how a couple of things, not only was there like almost no writing about them. But more importantly, I could see a real angle for telling their history, and that was a Cold War angle. Uh, They were the only group of uh, labor migrants to come from a communist-ruled country. This was, of course, during the Cold War. 
so I could see, okay, I've, I've got a topic, I've got an angle. Uh, and I also knew fairly early on that there were these, uh, we'll, we'll talk about these groups soon, I'm sure, but um, there were these Croatian extremist radicals um, in Germany, sort of, you know, they would pop up every now and then and reading about like, oh, they, they bombed a place here or that, you know, things like this. And I thought, okay, there's, there's something there. Um, and, and from there, I, I went with it. That's great. I mean, I, I enjoyed hearing about your process. And I think uh, anyone who's ever written a dissertation also always has that fear of, has this been done? Is someone else going to do it before me? And of course, the longer you work as a scholar, you come to realize that, of course, multiple people can work on the same topic and make uh, contributions. But I think as, as, as a new scholar, it's really interesting kind of the, the mindset we have on how that, how, how that led you in this, uh, what wound up being a very fruitful direction. So um, I think at this point, Chris, uh, we should dive into the content of your book. And I think in your introduction, which I really enjoyed, you, uh, you, you were very succinct and convincing, at least to me, of uh, making the case that you really have an original contribution here. And so uh, as you've already mentioned, uh, the project is pretty fresh in the field of migration studies because it moves beyond the case of Turkish guest workers, where there's been uh, a lot of work, both uh, obviously prior to your doing your dissertation, but also, as you mentioned, I've had a number of recent podcast guests who've done some great new books on it, and there, there are more coming out, as anyone who goes to conferences like the GSA can can see these young uh, scholars presenting great work. Um However, I think you can also claim to study the transnational history of Yugoslav immigrants to West Germany in a very expansive manner. So you explore four different categories of Yugoslav immigration over the course of 50 years of history, approximately 50 years. Our audience, I think, would benefit from some of the context that your book provides, especially some of the context that it provides in the intro. So... I'll ask you, what were the four different categories of immigration that you study in this book? And in what eras was each most significant for Yugoslavians who wanted to move to Germany? Okay. Um, yes. Yeah, so this is, um, you know, I think part of what has made my book really interesting, uh, at least in terms of researching and writing it, is I'm dealing with four groups uh, of, of migrants or refugees who came from Yugoslavia. But each of these groups really very different, distinct from one, from, from each other. So um, I'm going to run through the four major groups then. So uh, the first group that I look at, and this is really the focus of the first two chapters of the book, these are um, post-World War II emigres. Um, emigres came from Yugoslavia uh, really at the end of World War II, uh, and, and continued to arrive in smaller numbers, really up through uh, maybe the early 1950s. Now, these emigres came from, you know, they were they were Serbs, Slovenes, Croatians, Bosnians. Uh, but Croatians were the largest number among uh, among these groups and also uh, really have the, the most substantial history. And so I, I focus um, er, the first two chapters of the book on these uh, Croatian emigres. So they arrived in Germany. Basically, they were uh, they were anti-communists, uh, many of them Croatian nationalists who had been involved in uh, the, the Croatian fascist regime. And when Tito took over Yugoslavia at the end of World War II, uh, 
they, these emigres were afraid very justifiably of being punished. And so they, they sought refuge uh, really throughout parts of the Western world, but in very large numbers uh, in, uh, in Germany. So they were basically anti-communists, um, emphasized their Catholicism. Uh, we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll talk more about them later, but that's, that's basically it. They settled uh, in Germany in the early post-war era. The second group that I focus on, uh, uh, this is uh, asylum seekers. Uh, this is a group uh, that began arriving in Germany in 1954. This was 1954 is the year that Germany first established camps and a legal process for accepting foreign asylum seekers. This was forced on them by um, by the Allies. So I begin in 1954 and I end in 1968 um, looking at uh, asylum seekers coming from Yugoslavia. This history was, um, before I wrote about it, this history, I don't want to exaggerate, but was completely unknown. Um, and so it was really interesting to find this. But between 1954 and 1968, Yugoslavs represented the largest group of asylum seekers to come to Germany. This is really amazing when one thinks that, okay, you know, if you know that there was a, you know, a big um, uprising uh, in Hungary in 1956, uh, and then uh, the Prague Spring uprising in Czechoslovakia in 1968, both of which created, you know, massive flows of refugees heading to the West, including West Germany, even when you consider those groups of Hungarians uh, and Czechs and Slovaks, Yugoslavs were still the largest group of asylum seekers to come into the country. So really sort of new and allowed me to kind of think about not just the history of labor migrants, but the, also the history of, of refugees. The third group that I look at uh, are Yugoslav labor migrants, so so-called guest workers. Um, Germany and Yugoslavia didn't sign a labor recruitment agreement until 1968. It didn't take effect until 1969. But in fact, Yugoslavs began arriving in West Germany as labor migrants in small numbers uh, beginning in the mid-1950s. This really began to pick pick up or their numbers really began to increase in the early to mid-1960s. And then their numbers really boomed. Uh, after the labor recruitment agreement was signed in 1968. So that by 1970, Yugoslavs represented now the largest group of labor migrants in the country um, by by country of origin. Uh, Okay, the the final group that I look at are uh, Bosnian Muslim war refugees. Um, I think we'll talk more about uh, the dissolution of Yugoslavia, the wars that sort of um, tore tore the country apart. Uh, But the largest group of refugees uh, to flee from these wars in Yugoslavia were Bosnian Muslims. Um, Approximately 600,000 Bosnian Muslims uh, fled uh, to European Union states uh, in the first half of the 1990s. And Germany took in more than half of them, approximately 350,000. Um, so, yeah, those are the four groups that I, uh, that I focus on. Great. And Thanks I, I guess, I just, I guess oh, if fine. I could just add one more thing. Um, I think, you know, you're, you're exactly right that with this history, I, I've tried to um, broaden the field of German migration history by looking at a group beyond uh, Turks, you know, looking, by looking at Yugoslavs. 
But I, I also have tried to broaden it in another way, and that is that the field of German post-war German migration history has focused overwhelmingly on guest workers. And my book is really one of the first histories to, um, to devote very substantial um, space to thinking about Germany's post-war history of refugee migration. Great, thank you. And I, I think uh, both uh, that that final bit that you added and and the whole overview uh, will be really good for our listeners as we uh, when we start working through some of the individual chapters, so they have uh, the big picture in mind. But before we go into the individual chapters, I have one more big picture question for you about the book. And I think uh, throughout the book. Uh, you argue that the reception of Yugoslav immigrants was shaped to a large degree by both memory of World War II and the Cold War. Um, so we will return to these themes, of course, throughout the interview as we re- review some of the specifics in the chapters. But nonetheless, I'd like to provide you an opportunity to speak from the outset about this argument and some of its consequences. I was quite struck by how the politics of memory especially would often be more important than uh, for example, the racial racialization of Yugoslav immigrants. For example, and I'm going to quote you here, you write that, quote, Germans have not needed to racialize immigrant groups in order to carry out harsh and punitive measures against them. So I was wondering if you could please explain this argument for our listeners. Okay, um, great. Yeah, this is a question that really kind of um, is uh, is really an important part of the book and what I've tried to do here. So, um So I want to start out by saying that um, I don't dispute at all that race has played a powerful role in German views of minority groups in the post-war era. So, you know, I think of work by uh, Heidi Fehrenbach, an important book called Race After Hitler, um, Rita Chin's work on uh, on Turks and Muslims in Germany. These, uh, These sort of works have clearly shown the significance of race for understanding Germany's uh, post-war immigration history. That said, um, German policy and attitudes towards Yugoslavs, I found, were shaped much more by, as you've said, um, the shifting Cold War context and shifting Germany, uh, German memory politics than they were shaped by uh, conceptions of racial or cultural difference. Um, Now, that's not to say that attitudes towards Yugoslavs weren't shaped at all by racial considerations. They were. Um, And I have in the book some, uh, you know, some commentary by German officials saying, oh, we like Yugoslavs better than Turks because uh, they are cleaner or they're easier to deal with uh, or or they look like us on the streets, things like this. But I also have some commentary going the other way of of, uh, German officials saying, oh, we can't let these Yugoslavs in because they are clearly asocial criminals. Okay, so what, there's there's this sort of racial discussion um, evaluating Yugoslavs as a sort of, you know, white Europeans who are like us and who can fit in. And then also Yugoslavs as, you know, the, uh, as this negative group of criminals and asocials. So it, it goes both ways. Um, so it's there. But the fact is, most of the time when Germans discussed Yugoslavs, wrote policy about Yugoslavs, um, race just was not what they were thinking about. Um, they were, they talked about Yugoslavs in the context of the Cold War and German memory politics. So 
I was influenced, um, you know, in thinking about this, I was influenced by um, recent work uh, on the Holocaust and other genocides by scholars such as Donald Bloxham, uh, Jeffrey Herf, and my advisor, Mark Roseman, um, all of whom have argued that Nazi racial thought has been overemphasized as a causal factor in the Holocaust. So I was reading sort of some of that material, and I thought, huh, you know, this, in a way, this relates to Yugoslavs as well. So when I, when I did the research and the writing, um, I found that the history of Yugoslavs complicates then the explanatory power of race for understanding post-war German migration history. And I want to just very briefly um, mention four points, four sort of quick examples um, of how I uh, deal with this in the book. Uh, the Croatian emigres, who I mentioned already, they were at first embraced by many West Germans, and then they were turned on, uh, not because of any sort of racial thinking or sort of reevaluation of Croatian culture, but because of changing uh, memory politics uh, and changing Cold War politics. Moving to another group, Yugoslav asylum seekers, again, this is during the 1950s and the 1960s, they were treated poorly and almost always denied asylum, even though they were what we would consider white Europeans fleeing communist Eastern Europe. Um, third point, the West German state, uh, particularly during the 1950s and early 1960s, um, was fearful of allowing in Yugoslav guest workers, not because they thought that they were um, sort of culturally or racially foreign, but because West German officials feared that allowing in Yugoslavs might allow a communist infiltration of West Germany. Okay, so they represented a sort of political threat in the context of the Cold War, not a sort of um, status as, not a threat as some sort of cultural or racial outsiders. The final point I want to make, and this is, I, I kind of think it's the best example. Um, you know, by the time you reach the 1990s um, in Germany, Muslims have been stigmatized for, you know, at least a decade as sort of cultural and racial outsiders in large part because of their, their culture and their Islamic faith. Okay, so that was sort of present in German politics and present discourse. Nonetheless, when Bosnian Muslim refugees began fleeing into Germany in massive numbers in the early 1990s, um, German media and German politics, uh, they didn't otherize, they didn't other Bosnians, they didn't stigmatize them culturally or racially because they were Muslims. In fact, if anything, um, you know, the media emphasized how uh, they were good Muslims, and they were sort of like us. Um, and yet, uh, when the war ended in Bosnia in 1995, even though they hadn't been stigmatized or, or des described as others, uh, German states still forced them back. The only state in Europe to, to do this, uh, they forced them back, often with great uh, brutality. Great. Thanks uh, for, for giving us once again, kind of this overview of one of your arguments, Chris. And I think 
Now, I'd like to jump into your first chapter, which analyzes the situation for Croatian immigrants to West Germany during the 50s. And you've mentioned them before. In fact, I think you said, remember correctly, that they were in part the initial inspiration for pursuing this topic. And in this scenario, West Germans embraced many emigres who had troubled pasts with fascism and genocidal violence. So I was wondering if you could first uh, concisely describe the role of Croatia in World War II, and then explain why this group of immigrants, many of whom were guilty of wartime brutality against Jews, the Roma, and Serbs, uh, and how they successfully were able to cast themselves as Cold War victims. Okay. Um Right. So uh, Germany invaded and defeated Yugoslavia uh, really in a matter of days in April 1941. As part of that process, uh, as part of that process, uh, Germany, together uh, together with Italy, uh, kind of tore apart the state of Yugoslavia and gave it's too it's too complex to go into detail, but basically handed out little parts of Yugoslavia uh, to different uh, surrounding allied states. One of the things that they did, that Germany did, was they created uh, the so-called independent state of Croatia. Um, In reality, this was a German uh, puppet state, uh, but they brought into into power to rule this Croatian state, they brought the fascist Ustasha party, um, which was ruled by uh, Ante Pavlic. So uh, the Ustasha, when it was in power, uh, almost immediately began its own program of rounding up and murdering Jews and Roma. Um, but they were uh, their, their main focus was trying to get rid of the nearly 2 million Jews um, who, who resided on, uh, in the new Croatian state. Okay. So, um, and they took great efforts to, uh, to, to murder, again, as I said, not just Jews and Roma, but uh, took great efforts to, to murder Jews, I'm sorry, to murder uh, Serbs, to uh, force them to uh, convert to Catholicism, to, to push them out of the state, seize their properties. Um, uh, and they did a lot of this, most of this on their own initiative. I mean, they set up their own concentration camps. They had their own uh, you know, brutal uh, camp system. Um, so the Croatian state during World War II was one of the most brutal places in all of Europe during World War II. Um, okay, so you know World War II comes to an end. Uh, Tito's uh, partisans uh, have uh, you know defeat this independent state of Croatia uh, and uh, and bring it back into a now socialist communist Yugoslavia. Uh, and these many of these Croatian nationalists, including leading figures, now flee throughout the Western world, many of them settling in West Germany. So uh, the second part of your question, well, why, you know, if these Croatian radicals, these nationalists were such unsavory characters, um, why did so many Germans embrace them? Uh, and the answer is that many German elites embraced Croatian emigres during the late 1940s and 1950s because Cro- the Croatians had effectively constructed a Cold War narrative about themselves, about their experiences that resonated with many Germans. Um, basically, the story went like this. Croatians came to West Germany and said, we 
us Croats, we are innocent victims of communist terror. Um, we are proud Christians devoted to our homeland. And we've been cast, we've been violently cast out, forced out of our homeland by uh, the communists, by these, these godless atheists. Okay, and this really resonated with a lot of Germans. Um, of course, um, millions of Germans had themselves been uprooted from their homelands in Eastern Europe with the expulsions uh, during uh, and after World War II. And they blamed this uh, on the communists as well. Okay, so this the way that the Croats presented themselves as devout Christians, um, as anti-communists, uh, and as people suffering the loss of their homeland, this re- just absolutely resonated with so many Germans. Um, and I want to just mention one one final point here. Uh, when Croatians and others like Slovenians, Serbs, uh, and other groups were, were fleeing, you know, basically desperately trying to escape Yugoslavia at the end of the war as Tito's partisan forces were chasing them, trying to catch them, um, uh, something happened right at the end of the war. Uh, this is known as, Croats call it as the Tragedy of Bleiburg, uh, named after a town uh, in Austria, just over the border from Yugoslavia. And basically what happened here was uh, these uh, these people, Croats, Slovenians, Slovenians and others, were, were trying to desperately escape Yugoslavia to escape uh, you know, retribution from Tito's forces. Uh, some of them tried to surrender to the British. The British said, no, we, you need to surrender to Tito. Tito's forces then caught up with them and absolutely massacred um, these populations of, uh, you know, men, women, and children. Um, and somewhere in the range of, who knows, maybe this is really disputed, but maybe somewhere in the range of 50,000 Croats were, uh, were murdered in this, what, what was no doubt a war crime. Um, and so Croats came to West Germany and they really developed and elaborated upon what they called this tragedy of Bleiburg, that they had suffered terribly. They were innocent victims. And so they used these tales of victimhood, um, just like Germans did with the expulsion, with their expulsion from Eastern Europe. They used these tales of victimhood to sort of, as, as a screen, to sort of purify them and wipe away any discussion of their own crimes uh, during the war. And this, this proved incredibly effective. All right. Well, with my next question, I'm going to be a little bit self-indulgent as a scholar of Catholicism and religion, but the Catholic church plays an important role in the early chapters of your book when you're talking about Croatian immigrants. And on the one hand, Catholic clerics uh, often led the influential Croatian organizations that were established in West Germany. And on the other hand, uh, German Catholics often became important allies to Croatian immigrants. So I just wonder if you could uh, discuss in a little more detail the role of Catholicism in the reception of Croatians uh, in Germany after the war. Okay, thank you, Michael. Yes, I, I know your uh, your work, so I, I figured uh, there would be a, a question or two on uh, the role of Catholicism. Uh, yeah, so, um, you know, I guess a couple points here. Uh, first of all, um, you know, scholars of fascism, you know, always sort of trying to categorize different types of fascism. And uh, frequently, Croatian fascism has been described as a sort of clerico-fascism. Um, 
You know, this this is disputed by some scholars, but the basic idea is that um, one of the defining characteristics of Croatian fascism was that it fused with this sort of nationalist, strident Catholicism. Um, and in fact, uh, the uh, there were, you know, really important supporters uh, among the Catholic Church hierarchy in wartime Croatia. Uh, and some of these figures were, you know, were administrators and were involved with some of the really, you know, terrible, violent, genocidal actions going on during the war. Um, so there's that linkage between Catholicism and the Ustasha. Uh, when the war ends, um, you know, uh, Croatian leaders are fleeing, trying to find refuge throughout the world. Pavlic, uh, you know, the leader is able to flee and find refuge in Argentina. Others find refuge in, in uh, Spain, Italy, Austria, West Germany. Um, but what happens is that the Croatian clerics, again, many of them very high up, uh, deeply committed to the Ustasha cause and, and really kind of with blood on their hands, what happens is these Croatian clerics are able to achieve a sort of public standing um, uh, and, a, and a sort of, um, you know, they're respected because they're, they're wearing the robes of a cleric. Uh, and, uh, you, know, you know, you have people like Pavlich who, sure, they, you know, they find refuge in Argentina or, or other places, but they are in hiding. The Catholic priests who were involved kind of got a pass, okay, and they were allowed to to continue serving as priests. Uh, they continued to serve uh, as heads of various uh, welfare uh, organizations, including the Croatian chapter of Caritas, the International Catholic Charity, and uh, through their control of some of these organizations or their standing in the church, they are able to acquire resources um, which help which they then use to provide cover for, you know, some other more complicit um, Croatian fascists or radicals. Um, and so that's, I guess that's the first part of the question is, you know, how, you know, the, the role that Croatian clerics and Catholicism uh, played in sort of uh, putting down roots in West German society. Um Turning to the other part, and that is, you know, um, how did this play in West Germany? Well, um, it played very well. Um, Croatians settled most heavily in the south of Germany and particularly in deeply, deeply Catholic uh, Bavaria. Um, they were able to, these Catholic clerics from Croatia were able to forge connections uh, with Catholic priests, uh, with, uh, with the Archbishop of uh, Munich and Freising. Um, and they were able to cast the Croatian national struggle, uh, again, in the terms of the Cold War, as basically being, uh, again, suggesting that Croatians were, um, were devout anti-communist Catholics, and they were able to present the Cold War as really a battle against godless atheism. This resonated, uh, again, the, the papacy was, was pushing this exact line very early on. Uh, in the Cold War, actually before the before the Cold War, um, and so uh, this this resonated with with a lot of Germans and, and helped helped the Croatian emigrate community sort of establish an institutional base within uh, the Catholic uh, Church in West Germany. 
Great. And then I think moving forward, we can talk about your your next chapter where you advance the narrative a little bit into the 1960s. And you discuss uh, the terror attack on the Yugoslav uh, trade mission in Melheim in 1962. And I was wondering if you'd share with us uh, what were the factors that led uh, some young Croats to become radicalized to the point of committing kind of a, a violent act like this. But why also did these uh, Croatian activists, um, or I, I guess the response they got from West Germans was different than they expected. So uh, why was that? Okay, so the first part of this question is, you know, why did uh, a, a segment, and I want to emphasize it really is a small segment of young Croatians, uh, why did they Why did they get radicalized? Um, and so, you know, I guess I want to make a generational distinction here. It's kind of the old guys, the post-war emigres, um, you know, coming, you know, in 1945 or, or just after that. These are the guys who are spreading the real sort of anti-communist um, Croatian nationalist propaganda uh, in West Germany. But it's the young guys, the people, the people who are arriving as 18-year-olds in, say, 1958. It's these young guys who are actually carrying out the violent attacks. The most famous one is the one you referred to, the bombing of the Yugoslav trade mission in, uh, in Bonn in 1962. So part of the reason why these, uh, these young people become radicalized is because, as I mentioned earlier, uh, there, Yugoslavia and West Germany didn't have a um, labor recruitment agreement until 1968. But despite that, fairly significant numbers of young Yugoslavs were still finding ways to, to come to West Germany uh, to, to work. Because there was no formal, formal uh, recruitment agreement, many of these young Croats came to rely upon Croa- the Croatian emigres uh, who had long resided in West Germany. So these Croatian emigres, including priests uh, and heads of welfare organizations, would help these young Croats get to Germany, you know, like, like how do you actually get there, um, would help them find jobs, would help them find a, a place to live, uh, would help them secure the paperwork that they needed. And so a lot of these young Croats came to absolutely rely upon this older generation of emigres. Uh, and the older generation of emigres, they weren't just sort of selfless altruists saying, I'm going to help out my, you know, Croatian uh, brothers. Uh, they were, you, I mean, we could put it like this. I think it's appropriate. They were preying on these young Croats. They knew that the young Croats uh, had no network to help them besides them. So they said, you know, things like, okay, well, if you want this job, you have to join our organization. You have to come to the meetings, things like this. Um, also, once young Yugoslavs started arriving in Germany in substantial numbers, Uh, late 1950s, early 1960s, again, coming basically to find work. Uh, This led to a furious competition for new recruits uh, among the different uh, Croatian, excuse me, Croatian nationalist uh, emigrate organizations. So there were a whole, there was a whole variety of Croatian emigrate organizations at odds with each other. All of a sudden, all of these young Yugoslavs, many of Croats, are arriving and the organizations are sort of saying to themselves, ah, fresh blood, but we need to make sure we're the ones who get them. 
And this furious recruitment process, this battle among the emigre organizations, um, also contributed to uh, radicalization. Okay, um, so um, the uh, Croatian radicals who bombed the Yugoslav trade mission in 1962, they assumed, you know, they did this very openly and they, you know, they did it in broad daylight. They allowed themselves to be arrested. They carried banners saying, this is how you take down the Berlin Wall, banners written in German. They were doing this as propaganda for the Croatian national cause. And they assumed, because of the Cold War context, they assumed that West Germans would sympathize with them. Of course, they were dead wrong. Um, Germans had sympathized with the emigre cause, but when the emigres turned to violence, this marks a sort of major turning point in in the West in West German attitudes uh, towards the Croatian emigres. So, why uh, why did the Germans respond differently than Croatians expected? Well, first, I can say you know we can say that the emigres simply miscalculated. Um, they you know they assumed okay we clearly have German support and they did have very substantial German support mainly from the Catholic Church, uh, conservative politicians and German expellees from Eastern Europe. So they had this support, um, but they took it too far with the violent attack, uh, and they didn't recognize uh, that German society itself was changing. And this is really kind of the big part that I focus on in this chapter, chapter two of the book. And this is that um, part of the, a major part of the German response to this uh, bombing of this Yugoslav trade mission was shaped by the emergence, uh, definitely a sort of early and slow emergence of a new politics of memory in Germany. Um, So beginning in the early 1960s, you have kind of the beginning of a new era of this process of coming to terms with the past in Germany. Um, You know, there's a number of trials that historians often refer to. So Eichmann in Jerusalem uh, this trial was in 1961, and then beginning in 1963, you had the trial of German uh, Auschwitz guards uh, that took part in Frankfurt. These trials gained very, very significant attention uh, in the West German media and among the West German public. At the same time, you had the establishment of a new institute, uh, Institut für, uh, für Zeitgeschichte, so Institute for Contemporary History, um, which began the sort of intensive study of the history of fascism. Uh, And one of the very first books put out by this institute um, in Munich was A History of Croatian Fascism. And in this book, Croatian, leading Croatian emigres in who are, you know, in Germany, sort of creating this public face for themselves and Croats are shown to have been, you know, complicit fascist collaborators. So basically, the politics of memory is really changing. Um, The Croats who attacked the Yugoslav trade mission, they went to trial in 1964 um, at a point when Germans, you know, had been, uh, you know, watching the or or hearing about the the Eichmann trial in Jerusalem, the trial of the Auschwitz guards in Frankfurt. Um, And uh, and the young Croats, they're 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 whole strategy of the trial is to basically say Tito is worse than Hitler, right? Tito and the Yugoslavs, those are the Nazis and we're against them. So we're the good guys. Uh, and the German, German media, 
um, begins to look into the history of Croatia and Yugoslavia during World War II. And, and to put it briefly, what they end up kind of saying collectively is, no, we're looking at this history and the Croatians, you guys who are presenting yourselves as innocent victims, you are the bad guys. You are the fascist collaborators and no one should be supporting you. Great. And at this point, I want to give uh, you a chance to talk about uh, some of your middle chapters about Yugoslav migration to West Germany from you know, the late 50s into the 70s. And it was a period where Yugoslavs uh, could not participate in the state-controlled programs that drew Italian, Greek, and Turkish guest workers, for example, to West Germany at the height of the economic miracle, even though Yugoslav labor was viewed as valuable by many employers. Uh, in addition, you also show how Yugoslavs faced a different situation than, say, Hungarians or Czechs or other Eastern Europeans seeking asylum from persecution in Warsaw Pact nations in this period. So uh, I guess I'd like to give you a chance to describe uh, or discuss this unique situation for those who are seeking to leave Yugoslavia in this era. And also, uh, you know, you mentioned earlier how original a lot of your work here is on the issue of asylum. So maybe you could talk, uh, you know, uh, as you see fit about some of those issues. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, as you said, uh, during the economic miracle, West Germany had just this incredible demand, uh, for labor. Uh, you know, Italians were coming in, Greeks, Turks, and there were, there was still growing labor demand. Um, and Yugoslavs or, or West German employers, um, specifically were requesting more Yugoslav laborers, but there were three obstacles to their, um, you know, to their, being able to uh, to migrate to to West Germany, the first obstacle uh, was uh, came from the Yugoslav government itself. Uh, in Yugoslavia, emigration was considered illegal until 1962. So basically, the Yugoslav state said anyone who flees our country is considered a hostile enemy. Okay, so that that sort of hindered a lot of um, Yugoslavs from from uh, migrating to West Germany. Well, the next two sort of obstacles to Yugoslavs migrating to Germany come from uh, West Germany. So first, uh, in 1957, Yugoslavia became uh, became the first uh, state within the communist bloc to recognize, I'm sorry, the first state outside of the communist bloc to recognize the East German state. Uh, to say we uh, to say basically we recognize the East German state as a legitimate real state. Um, West Germany had a policy known as the Hallstein Doctrine, which said that any state that recognizes East Germany diplomatically, we will break off relations with them. So in 1957, uh, Yugoslavia recognizes East Germany, extends diplomatic recognition. West Germany immediately says, "Okay, we are cutting off diplomatic." Uh, recognition of Yugoslavia. And this meant that with no diplomatic relations, the two states uh, were unable to meet together to hammer out a Yugoslav or to hammer out a labor recruitment agreement as West Germany had done with uh, Italy, Turkey, Greece, and more countries. Um, Okay, so that limited their ability to come to West Germany. The third reason, or the third limit, was that West Germany in the 1950s and really through about the mid-1960s, there was a real fear that allowing 
Yugoslavs, Yugoslav labor migrants into the country represented a threat of a communist infiltration of West German society. Okay. So again, this cold war fear. Um, so uh, Yugoslavs uh, were desired, but there were obstacles in their way. Uh, there were still, however, multiple pathways into West Germany for Yugoslavs. Uh, one way, uh, it was a very, very complex, time-consuming process um, where a West German employer could ask, could, could ask for a Yugoslav by name to come to West Germany. Um, this was a really time-consuming process, and, and some, some migrants came this way, but for others, they said, no, I'm not doing this. And so some arrived at, on a tourist visa, basically saying, hey, we're, we're coming for a vacation. And then they overstayed their visa and got, got work. There was a final way into West Germany or a way of sort of legalizing uh, your stay. And that was by applying for asylum. Um, as I said, Yugoslavs applied for, more Yugoslavs applied for asylum in West Germany than did uh, uh, citizens of any other state between 1954 and 1968. And they arrived with sort of uh, complex motives. Um, some Yugoslavs complained about being discriminated against, uh, say, with job opportunities because they weren't communists or because they went to church. Uh, but many Yugoslavs also complained uh, about economic conditions in Yugoslavia. Uh, and said, look, we want to come to West Germany because we know, you know, that there's a strong Deutschmark and employers need us. So there was a sort of overlap of um, political and economic reasons for coming uh, to West Germany. However, um, Yugoslavs uh, were not treated particularly well uh, when they applied for asylum in West Germany. Um, so the the traditional view, um, to the extent that there is historical research on asylum in the early decades of the Cold War, the traditional view has gone like this. It says white European refugees from the communist bloc were welcomed with open arms uh, during the first two decades of the Cold War. Uh, and then the follow up to that it sort of goes like this. It says asylum only became problematic and only became a political football in West Germany when asylum seekers, uh, when the number of asylum seekers uh, grew tremendously in the late 1970s, and when at the same time they began coming not from Europe, but from the developing world. Okay, but the experience of Yugoslavs shows that this isn't really accurate. Um, Yugoslav asylum seekers uh, often faced harsh deportations, uh, they were often sent back at the German border, which actually was against German asylum law. Um, they suffered through absolutely horrendous conditions uh, at the only federal refugee camp in all of Germany. This was uh, called Valka on the outskirts of Nuremberg. The conditions there were, without wanting to go into it in great detail, the conditions there were absolutely horrendous um, and they were you know, unsanitary and they were totally isolated with no labor opportunities or anything. Yugoslavs also were, uh, were almost always denied asylum. Um, you know, maybe, maybe 10% uh, on, a, on an average year of Yugoslavs would be denied as, or would be uh, granted asylum. And so one of the things that I've tried to say beyond rejecting the sort of neat narrative of uh, 
asylum history in Cold War West Germany. One of the things I've also tried to say is that because Yugoslavs were the largest group of asylum seekers in this formative period of German Germany's uh, post-war asylum history, I've said that West German administrators, asylum administrators, um, views of asylum seekers in general were shaped by Yugoslavs. That is, they grew suspicious and skeptical and, uh, and came to view asylum seekers as, you know, economic refugees or cheaters here just to take advantage of Germans. And this then goes on to shape asylum policy and practice for other groups, including other Eastern European groups. Great. And I think uh, I'd like to give you a chance, or I want to make sure we have the opportunity to um, talk about the arrival of approximately 350,000 Bosnian Muslims uh, into Germany uh, shortly after unification in the 1990s. And this was obviously a very important episode in terms of asylum seeking as well. And it seems like you sketch out in your chapter on this uh, two sides to the the story of what happened here. Uh, On the one hand, it seems like there were a number of Germans who very altruistically and at great personal expense uh, went out of their way to try to care for Bosnian refugees in the 90s. But on the other hand, you had uh, this effort by uh, in Bavaria and in other states in Germany to very aggressively repatriate uh, Bosnian refugees back to Bosnia-Herzegovina. Uh, so I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about what you wrote about in that chapter. Yeah, so um, as I mentioned, uh, somewhere in the range of 350,000 Bos- Bosnian Muslim refugees um, fled, to West, uh, fled to now reunified Germany uh, between about 1992 and 1995. And, uh, you know, I've, I found that the Bosnian Muslims were really embraced by a lot of Germans, um, despite the fact that this was an era, the early 1990s, of uh, growing strident nationalism uh, in, in Germany, uh, and incredible outbursts of violence against immigrants. Okay, so in some ways, this is surprising that Germans, a lot of Germans kind of rallied around Bosnians and did a lot to, to help them. Um, so uh, before mentioning a couple reasons why this is the case, I, I also just want to uh, mention that while a lot of Germans um, did, did take in Bosnian Muslim refugees themselves, often at great personal cost, uh, it's also the case that the burden fell heaviest on uh, Yugoslav labor migrants who were already um, in West Germany. So, um, you know, so Yugoslav labor migrants took in huge numbers of Bosnian Muslim refugees into their apartments, you know, often, you know, 15, 20 people or circulating groups of people. Um, and, and had to sign waivers saying, you know, I will pay for all of their costs, including medical costs and possible deportation. So Yugoslavs um, bore the, the brunt of this uh, themselves. But Germans did take uh, make a lot of efforts to help Bosnians. And I guess I would um, point to three reasons here for this German support. First is that uh, the war in Yugoslavia was the first uh, major war within Europe since World War II. Um, it was a major war in Europe's 
you know, I mean, I was going to say in Europe's backyard, but that's not accurate. It, it was in within Europe. Also for Europeans, this was the first televised war. As Americans, we like to think of the Gulf War as the first televised war. But for Europeans, uh, the war in Yugoslavia was televised. So they could see the atrocities uh, in the newspaper. They could see it um, beamed into their uh, living rooms every day. Second, Germans had a real connection with Yugoslavia. And I think part of I think a major reason for this is that Yugoslavia was a major destination for German tourists um, all throughout the Cold War. Um, so a lot of Germans felt like this is this is a country in Europe. Uh, we see this terrible war and atrocities taking place. And this is a country that we know. This is a country we've been to multiple times and we have a connection with. The third reason um, I think a lot of Germans took in or supported Bosnian Muslim refugees is that uh, a lot of Germans remembered the expulsion of the Germans after World War II. And they remembered this as a traumatizing event, as a, as a terrible event. And now they saw people um, being violently pushed out of their own homelands and thought, that German history, our memory of our own expulsion teaches us, um, you know, how painful this is and, and how important it is that we that we help Bosnians. Um, as you alluded to in your question, however, uh, this uh, West German support or charity uh, for Bosnians uh, is only one side of the story. Um, after the war in Bosnia, uh, ends in late 1995. Uh, the, the Dayton Accords was signed in December 1995. Literally the day after the Dayton Accords are signed, uh, the German uh, the German gathering of interior ministers has a, already a document in place preparing for Bosnian Muslim refugees to be returned to their homeland. You know, one of the major problems with this is that um, Bosnian Muslims' homelands and and many, perhaps most cases, they have been ethnically cleansed. They have no homeland to return to because what used to be a Bosnian territory has now been taken over by Serbs. And if Bosnians go back, um, they will be um, you know, kicked out again or, or abused and face all sorts of violence. Um, uh, and so German states begin in 1996, and Bavaria plays the lead here. Uh, they begin... Uh, forcibly deporting uh, Bosnian Muslim refugees, um, uh, often, you know, often rather cruelly, you know, uh, there's instances of police showing up at Bosnian Muslims' apartments at, you know, four o'clock in the morning. Uh, in one case, this happens to a pregnant woman, rounding them up, putting them straight on an airplane and flying them back. So these are people traumatized by war being rounded up and treated like criminals. Um, and Bavaria plays the leading role here. Uh, Bavaria is the largest, at this point, the largest and most conservative German state. Uh, throughout much of the Cold War, they, because of their geography and because the only federal um, refugee camp, at least until the mid-1970s, uh, was in Bavaria, um, Bavaria always saw itself as a sort of gatekeeper uh, when it came to uh, asylum seekers and refugees. And the interior minister of Bavaria, Gunther Beckstein, he was a real hardliner. And he made um, 
you know, he, he openly said things like, well, you know, we need to, you know, I'm sort of, I'm paraphrasing here, but he said things like, we definitely need to let Bosnian Muslims know that we are serious about them having to return. And so the idea was that they have to voluntarily return. But in reality, um, German states um, used threats, used real deportations and threats of deportations to, as I write in the book, to force Bosnian Muslims to return. So there, there really was nothing voluntary about this. And, uh, and Germany is alone among the countries that took in Bosnian Muslim refugees. They're alone in um, demanding that, uh, that these refugees head back to their country. Again, where they often have no homeland to go to. And at the risk of taking up too much of your time, Chris, I would, in your conclusion, you do comment on uh, the so-called refugee crisis of 2015. And I think our audience might be interested to hear how you think your work provides a little bit of context to what happened in 2015. Yes. Um, and uh, I'll try to be uh, fairly concise here. So I, in the epilogue, I write just a little bit about how my study of Yugoslavs informs uh, the unfolding of the refugee drama in Germany in 2015-2016, in which uh, you know 890,000 refugees enter uh, the country in uh, 2015 alone. The majority of these were, of course, uh, Syrian refugees, but uh, a very, very large number of them, over 100,000, uh, came from the Western Balkans, basically the former Yugoslavia. So very simply, one of the ways that I think my book helps us understand the refugee uh, crisis of 2015-2016 is that my book provides historical context on the history of refugees in post-war Germany. Before my book, there's very, very little historical research um, that goes into this deeper history of asylum and refugees in post-war German history. Um, also, uh, in my book, I suggest, as we've talked about that, um, you know, I've suggested that sure race is important, but it doesn't really, exp- there's a lot that it can't explain when we think about German migration history. And so, um, there was incredible racism, uh, as, as I think we all know, directed towards many of these refugees, particularly Muslim refugees from Syria and Afghanistan. Um, there's, there's no denying that. Uh, but on the administrative side of things, at least in 2015, the overwhelming majority, uh, I think, you know, 90% or more of Syrian refugees were granted um, some sort of asylum. Um, you know, even though the majority were, were Muslims coming from a non-European country. Uh, of the more than 100,000 refugees who arrived from the Balkans during the same period, um, far, far less than 1% um, of, of these groups. I don't, I, I'm almost calling them Yugoslavs, but by this point, they're really, you know, Albanians, Kosovar, Serbs. Um, fewer than 1% of them are granted uh, refugee status. In fact, the group that receives, uh, that receives refugee status the least are actually Serbs. And this is the popular of these different Yugoslav or ex-Yugoslav groups. Um, Serbs are the group that have the highest proportion of um, Christians. Okay, so the point is that um, at the level of policy, um, race is 
not what plays the deciding factor uh, in who is granted asylum. Again, that's not to deny the very real racism uh, directed against uh, Muslim um, uh, refugees during the crisis. And one very final point is that uh, I mentioned is that, um, you know, when Germans talked about, you know, what are we going to do during this refugee crisis of 2015, 2016, whether you thought, okay, I'm, I need to get out and I need to support refugees and we need to bring them in. Or if you thought we can't have these, you know, uh, these uh, foreign Muslim others coming into our country, whichever side you were on, part of my argument is that when Germans are thinking about migration and thinking about migrants, they're often thinking about their own past. So again, memory of Nazism, memory of the expulsion, memory of the Holocaust. Um, and so again, my my whole book sort of says when Germans are thinking about migration, uh, it often leads them back to considerations of their own experience with war, Holocaust, and expulsion. Well, Chris, I think uh, at this point, we've taken up a tremendous amount of your time, and I'd like to end with our traditional New Books Network question. Uh, now that you've completed this very innovative and uh, compelling book, uh, I'm sure everyone wants to know, what are you working on now? Well, I have um, two projects, uh, and both of them are really kind of outgrowths of this book. Um, the first one is an edited volume uh, that I've put together with a colleague uh, at Ohio University, Mirna Zakic. Um, and this edited volume, is its title is German Balkan Entangled Histories in the 20th Century, uh, a little plug here. It's forthcoming with uh, Pittsburgh University Press in 2020. Uh, and this edited volume, its focus is really has four focal points, war, empire, forced migration, and memory. But I'm also working on another monograph. I've been collecting material uh, for the last uh, couple of years, and I'll finally have a chance to start writing uh, very soon here. Um, a working title is Memory and Migration in the New Germany. And here I'm looking at the um, basically the, the collapse of communism in 1989 leads to a massive influx of uh, refugees and asylum seekers uh, at a moment of resurgent uh, nationalism. Um, and so I'm looking here at a number of groups uh, who, who enter Germany, uh, Roma asylum seekers in large numbers, uh, but also Soviet Jews. And I'm looking again at how um, how Germans treated these different groups and how German attitudes and policy toward towards these groups were informed by uh, memories of the Holocaust and the Nazi era. Excellent. Well, maybe when that uh, project is done, we could have you back on the show sometime. Sounds great. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much for giving us your time today. And thanks for being on the show, Chris. Thank you very much for this uh, interview. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. And to the rest of you, you have been listening to an episode in New Books in German Studies, a channel in the New Books Network of Podcasts. My name is Michael O'Sullivan, and our guest today was Dr. Christopher Molnar. We discussed his recent book, Memory, Politics, and Yugoslav Migrations to Postwar Germany, published with Indiana University Press in 2018. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope that you will continue to listen.